<laughs> You're a perfect mother, Barbara. Your arm is all wrapped up. Is it still hurting? <laughs> yes, it hurts. <laughs> it does hurt. Yes, it does hurt. But <clears throat> thank you so much for your prayers and your cards and your texts and for not coming to my house. It has, it's, been, um, it's been a surprise. Uh, I know I've only been out one week, but it feels like about six. Emotionally, it's been uh, a bit of a challenge because I had hoped that my surgery uh, on this shoulder would be similar to the one I had on this shoulder several years ago, which was fairly simple. Just a torn labrum went in, in a sling for a couple of weeks. Physical therapy begins for six weeks, and then you're good to go. Boom. This one's not that way. He got in there and found that my uh, rotator cuff had also torn. And um, I don't remember doing anything. Probably all happened when I was, you know, walking in carnality as a child. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but he fixed it. And I'm with this uh, doohickey for about uh, five weeks. So because my shoulder has to be completely immobile for five weeks so that the rotator cuff can heal back together. Then I began physical therapy for whoever knows how long that's going to be, at least six weeks, at least six weeks. So I haven't done all the math. I don't want to do all the math on how long that's going to be, but it's a long time. I'm just glad that my next uh, Holy Land tour isn't until August, so I've got some time to, uh, to heal and to make, make some good direction. But I'll tell you what, um, having your arm in one of these things is a great way to get perspective. I mean... Obviously, um, I've got a, a, a temporary handicap. In many ways, it's uh, pretty humbling when you realize that you, you use both arms for a lot of things. You know, tying shoes, putting on a shirt, taking off a shirt. I mean, just think about everything you do with two, two arms and two hands and everything. It's uh, pretty crazy. It was funny. Um, uh, Kathy went to visit a friend in Montana this morning. And so as she was leaving, she says, you need any help with anything? I said, no, nope, I think I got it all set. And I hadn't shaved for a week. Well, I hadn't shaved since the surgery, so I guess it was a week and a half. So I had, you know, 10 days worth of stuff sticking out of my face this morning when I woke up. And I got in front of the mirror and I thought, I've never shaved left-handed. I've never shaved with one hand. Because we usually, you know, the older we get, we got to start stretching stuff to make sure you get everything. So, I mean, that was the most careful session of shaving I think I've ever done. And I only nicked myself about eight times. So I call that, call that success. But anyway, thanks, thanks for your prayers, and uh, let's keep them going. Um, I was thrilled to hear uh, Celeste share today. Where are you, Celeste? There you are. And one of the things I love about every time you come is that the British accent hasn't taken you yet by storm. As you're there in England and at Oxford and around all those who speak uh, with different accent than we do. But it fits right into what we're looking at today in Leviticus because culture is, uh, influences us tremendously. Leviticus 20 is where we'll begin here in a couple of minutes. But just by way of introduction... Think about accents for a second. It's easy when you go to a different country to 
recognize the differences. Um, you don't speak the language. You don't dress the way they dress. You don't eat what they eat. It's very different. But then you go to a place like England, where you do speak the language, and yet it's still different. There, there, are, there are things in it that you just you think, you know, I'm hearing your words, but I don't think you mean what you just said. <laughs> there are phrases, there are colloquialisms that are far different. And we think, you know, when we hear a British person speak, it is so profound. I mean, their accent is just, just beautiful. Uh, you could hear them read the dictionary, and it would be mind. It would just be beautiful to just to listen to them read nothing. Uh, but then we go over there, and we think, you know, we're just normal. And so we talk, and they, they say, oh, where are you from? You know, what part of America are you from? And I don't have much of a southern drawl, but my wife has a huge southern drawl. And so when we go over there, they immediately know we're from Texas or from the south or one of the Carolinas or something. But um, what's fascinating is they think Americans have an interesting accent. It's just weird. It's like there's nothing interesting about an American accent. <laughs> and yet you don't think about the fact that you have an accent because it's normal to you until you've been around nothing but British people forever and then you hear someone, some stranger, that has an American accent, and you can't put your finger on it, but you know it's an American, and you just rush over, can I just hug you? Because you are speaking my language. You are speaking my accent. It's strange, but culture has a powerful effect on us. In the 1950s, hair was short. In the 1960s, hair was long. In the 1970s, we wore bell-bottom pants and thick ties. By the way, some of you are still wearing those. <laughs> in the 80s, we tie-dyed our shirts, and people actually listened to Boy George. In the 90s, we bought Beanie Babies and began piercing our bodies. And it just goes on. Why is that? Why in India do people wear turbans, and here we wear blue jeans? Why in Israel, when men pray at the Western Wall, do they cover their head and open their eyes and read from a book? When we pray, we uncover our heads, we close our eyes, and we pray extemporaneously. All these questions have one common answer, culture. We live in a culture, and culture deeply affects who we are. Everybody from our parents to our neighbors to our pastor to our churches, to our schools, affect us. Um, you, can, you can tell the times just by looking at things. I've got a friend who knows cars so well, he can look at a car and he can say, that is a 1975, you know, whatever, and he can tell me what year it was, and he's just, he's nuts that way. He knows the culture of cars. But let's put it in terms we can relate to on a little deeper level, do you feel like your income represents your worth as a person? Do you feel like your position among your peers must be one of distinction and importance and influence? What if your home doesn't look like that home on Better Homes and Gardens? You see, we know the rat race is for the rats, and yet we get in the race and we run 
anyway because we are part of the culture. Culture influences us. So, as we live in a culture that by and large does not flow the way of God, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we go against that, that tide that is at times a tsunami? Leviticus 20 is where we are. And you may remember last time we were in Leviticus, the last couple of chapters were pretty tough to choke down. It talked about idolatry, not just in the sense of idolatry that we might look at and say, oh, that's for them over there. But it got really close to home on some of these things that God says you shall not do. Because here in the United States of America, and frankly, and all over the world, in many different cultures, these things are still done. These things are still done in the world we live in today. And what we're going to look at here, in part, is similar to what we looked at last time. Um, Leviticus 18 is what we looked at last time and all the, the, the immorality that's there. But what we looked at, what we'll look at today in chapter 20, uh, or chapter 20, I should say, talks about not only some of those same things, but also the penalties for them. We're not going to get into the, the nitty-gritty details of it. But uh, the bottom line pull away or take away from the text today, I can just tell you, is that our behavior follows our belief. Our behavior follows our belief. Leviticus 20, look right at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as to not put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. Molech was a god of that day, of the god of the Canaanites. And he was a god that demanded child sacrifice. Obviously, we know that this is of the devil. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us when he wrote to the Corinthians that when people sacrifice to gods, they're essentially sacrificing to demons. So we can take that back and understand that the gods of the Canaanites were nothing but demons that were wearing Halloween masks, as it were. They wore the, the, the mask of Molech, but the reality is behind it is Satan. And the people of the land, were told, did this. And so Moses tells the people, his people, the Israelites, God's people, you're about to go into the land, you're about to live in these model homes that I've created or that I've provided for you, and it's going to be great. But watch out, watch yourself, because you're going to be going into a culture that, first of all, you're going to need to wipe out and not tolerate, because what's going to happen if you don't wipe them out and don't tolerate them, you allow them to sort of live on the fringes of your culture, they're going to begin to infringe on your culture 
they're going to begin to influence you. You're going to begin to tolerate them. You're going to begin to embrace them. You're going to begin to do the very things that they do. So bad was it at the time right before the exile in the time of Manasseh, King Manasseh, that Manasseh, the king of Judah, the representative of God on earth, of the kingdom of God on earth there in Judah, was sacrificing his children to the Canaanite gods. So exactly what God said is what happened. False belief leads to false behavior. The culture at this time was so duped by the devil that they thought that sacrificing their children would benefit their lives. Look at another example, verse 6. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Uh, Look down at verse 27. We'll come back, but look down at verse 27. The very last verse of the chapter says, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. So the beginning of the chapter talks about mediums and spiritists. End of the chapter talks about it as well, sort of bookends, and that this subject is at the beginning and the end of the chapter. This arrangement shows that there is a cause-effect relationship between what you think and how you act. The prime example of this, of course, is King Saul. Remember, King Saul biblically forbid there to be mediums and spiritists in the land, just like Leviticus 20 says there shouldn't be. And yet, when Saul prayed to God, after a whole series of opportunities to walk with God, God finally says, good, you don't want me, you don't get me, you get to be by yourself, Saul. And so Saul, in a moment of desperation, needed, he thought, to know what was going to be happening next in the battle with the Philistines. God wasn't answering his prayers. God wasn't answering by any of the normal means by which Saul would get answers. So what did Saul do? He went around, snuck around, went to a place where he knew there was a medium and did a little seance there with this medium. And as a result, God took his life the next day. Classic example of Leviticus 20. And this isn't just uh, Israel, ancient Israel. This is today. I know uh, up in New York, New York State, there is a town up there called Lilydale, I think, that is famous for its mediums and spiritists. It's like a tourist thing. You can pay, I, I remember at the time I read about it, it was like uh, uh, just under 10 bucks for a cover charge to get into this town. And they had, you know, mediums and spiritists. You could walk down the, walk down the street. There's shingles hanging outside of houses. You could go in, get your fortune told, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting, it's always a fortune. You know, you don't ever go in to get your tragedy told. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to pay $10 and go get my tragedy told. No, it's always fortune. In fact, I had a friend of mine, a close family relative, actually, back in the 1980s, that she would regularly go to a uh, fortune teller. I like almost It got to be like weekly. And then go to church on Sunday and didn't see the, the dis disharmony, disunity there. So finally, I don't remember if it was this particular passage or a parallel passage in Deuteronomy, I said, have you read 
these particular verses, she said no and read them, and then she realized she wasn't supposed to be going to that. So, and she stopped, to her credit. But God, why does God make this prohibition? Why does God make this prohibition? And it's because you and I are supposed to get our supernatural revelation from God, not from demons. This is, by the way, why when the demons would recognize Jesus Christ, he would always tell them to be quiet, because he doesn't want to be witnessed, be a witness to the world through demons, but rather through people. He would always tell them to be quiet. There's a famous quote from the famous one-liner from the movie The Sixth Sense. Remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? You watch The Sixth Sense? Yeah, I did too. I did too. But uh, I, would, I wouldn't recommend it now that I've seen it. It's easy to say that. But what was the famous one-liner from that movie? I see dead people. Yeah. Yeah, that's enough to encourage you not to go see it. I see dead people. I remember hearing about one pastor when he heard that quote. He says, oh, that's no big deal. I see that at every deacon's meeting. (laughs) I see dead people. We're supposed to get our supernatural revelation from God, not from dead people, not from demons, not from any other supernatural source but God. And if God doesn't give an answer, that means we wait. It doesn't mean we take a shortcut like King Saul did. In contrast to the culture around them, look back at verse 7 now. God's people were to be different. We are to be different than the culture that surrounds us. Verse 7 says, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Interesting uh, observations there. First of all, the command, you shall consecrate yourself. That is, you are, to, you are to set yourself apart. You are to set yourself apart from the practices of the culture, and you are to be holy. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Not Moloch. I am the Lord your God. Not the Dallas Cowboys. I am the Lord your God. Not Calvin Klein. Not a million-dollar salary, not the acclaim of the church staff. I am the Lord your God, me and me alone. You be holy because I am holy, not because Brother Bob is. And then verse 8, you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So he's not only our Savior God, he's not only our God, but he's also the God who makes us holy, who causes us to grow. Such an interesting combination of commands there. Separate yourself, consecrate yourself, be holy, keep my commandments, practice them. I will sanctify you. I will make you holy. Interesting, in the Middle Ages, the flickering lights of marsh gas were, uh, to many people, fairies or goblins, Fireflies, they thought, were the souls of unbaptized dead children. You see, it's not enough to just shun evil and do good. We have to get to the root of the problem, and that is our thinking. Our thinking. Because Satan and the culture and the world 
is going to do all they can to muddy the water, just like Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He hasn't changed his strategy because that strategy works. God created Adam and Eve in the garden, created them perfect, but did not create them autonomous. He created them in need. He created them to live in dependence on God, and particularly on God's word. And he made it real simple for them. Don't eat from that tree. That was it. That's like all the Bible they had. Don't eat from that tree. And so Satan comes in, and the first thing he does, he doesn't go, you know, have you ever thought about why you don't have 11 toes? <laughs> he doesn't go there. He goes straight for the Bible. Did God really say, you shall not eat from that tree? God's holding out on you. He muddies the water of God's word. And what happens when you take God's word out of the mix? Eve had nothing to make a decision with except her common sense. And I'll tell you what, if you take God's word out of the picture, the world's solutions are going to sound great. They will, because we are not designed to live autonomously. We need input outside ourselves to make decisions. And if we don't seek God, we'll seek the world's solution. Leviticus 20 is saying, don't seek the world's solution. Seek the word of God. Don't seek mediums or spiritists. This is like the, to the nth degree of seeking the world's solution. But rather, God says, keep my statutes. Read your Bible and practice it. Verse 8. So the principle, to pull from the text, the timeless truth, true in Leviticus, true right here in our lives today, is this. What we choose to believe will inescapably direct our actions. What we choose to believe will inescapably direct our actions. You can't escape it. What you believe is what you are going to do. Now, that's a pretty convicting statement because we don't always do what we want to do. In fact, thank God for Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul says, I do not do what I want to do. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for ripping the S off your Superman shirt and showing us the real you. Even Paul struggled with it. So, relax. You know, give yourself a break. But it's still, the standard is not Paul. The standard is Christ. What we choose to believe will inescapably direct our actions. Therefore, we need to constantly be renewing our minds because our minds grow weeds. One of the things I love about going to Israel is seeing archaeological stuff. But it doesn't take long for, for the, the, the original stuff to get buried over. In fact, forget Israel for just a second. Let's think about your yard. Think about your yard. You don't plant weeds. They plant themselves. You have to pull weeds. Um, if you don't take care of that wooden shed out back, it will fall down. Things in this world crumble. They get covered over. They get grown over. They get hidden. To where what's, what was originally there, you no longer see. To get to the original in Israel, you've got to dig. And the only way you're going to see the original stones that Jesus walked on is by digging to get to them. You've got to get rid of all this, all this other stuff. 
Same is true in our hearts. We've got to dig away. We've got to pull the weeds. We've got to brush off all the junk that this world gives us and renew our minds constantly, daily, being in the scriptures, being in prayer, being with other people that encourage us to do the same things. Because if we don't, if we can somehow get pushed off by ourselves into our own little Christian island, thinking, I don't need the church, I don't really need the Bible, it's just me and God. What you're going to end up doing is developing your own little religion that's going to eventually become pure heresy. Because God never created you or me to live autonomously, but in dependence on God, specifically on God's Word. When I think about the senseless act that happened yesterday in Allen, or we can think also think back probably more vividly, um, horribly, in September 11th, what would cause men to drive airplanes at full speed into buildings and kill themselves and thousands of other innocent people? What would do that? Answer, they believed it would take them to heaven. So once again, the principle is true. What we choose to believe will inescapably direct our actions. If we believe baloney, baloney is what our lives are going to look like. But if we believe truth, truth is what our lives are going to look like. Hence, again, being in the scriptures on a regular basis. Dallas Morning News asked two of our country's top religion pollsters to tell what statistics they found most telling. Here's a couple of stats of what they found. Half of Americans are fearful of being unforgiven by God or cut off from God's love when they die. Just Americans in general. But 35% of born-again Christians, and these are those who self-identify as born-again Christians, whether they are or aren't, we don't know. But nevertheless, 35% of born-again Christians say they are still searching for meaning in life. Incidentally, that's the same percentage as non-Christians. 35% of us, one-third of us are still searching for meaning in life. And my question is, why? How is that possible? Culture. It's the same answer. How is it possible when Moses sent out 12 spies into the land to go search out the land, they came back and said, land's great, God's exactly right, except there's giants there Ten of the twelve said, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can, because God, our God, is bigger than those giants. Caleb and Joshua were focusing on the size of their God. Ten of the twelve were just focusing on the size of the giants compared to them. It's a mindset, and this is why our mind has to be constantly renewed. Have you heard the joke about the, uh, the two fish that are swimming along in the water? Two young fish? They're swimming along in the water. This older fish swims by and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And then one of the other fish turns to the other fish and says, What's water? (laughs) See, that's us. We don't even realize we're speaking an American accent. Until you go to England and nobody does, and everyone's enthralled with your normal accent. You don't realize you're a fish in water because why? You're always in the water. We breathe Christian air. 
We put Christian gasoline in our cars. We buy Christian shirts. We are so inundated with our Christian uh, culture, and sometimes it doesn't mean it's a biblical culture. It's just kind of a Christian culture. Again, our standard is not Brother Bob or Sister Sue. Our standard is Christ. Christ is a pretty high standard. But the good news is he's died for the fact that we can't meet that standard. What we choose to believe will inescapably direct our actions. That's why it's important to see yourself as God sees you. To see yourself as God sees you. If you see yourself as worthless, you will treat yourself as worthless. If you see yourself as valuable, so valuable that God knows the number of hairs on your head, so valuable that God would send his son to die on the cross for you, then you are going to realize, I don't have to have the approval of everyone in church. I don't have to have the approval of my family who doesn't like the way we raise our kids or our grandkids. I don't have to have anybody's approval. I have God who tells me I'm valuable. What you believe will inescapably direct your actions. Listen to how Jesus said it. It's not just a self-image application. It is also a holiness application. Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6.46 In other words, if you believe on the Lord, it's going to have an effect on your actions. He also said in John 14.15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say this to prove that you don't love him. He knows you do. He's saying that to say, because you love me, keep my commandments. There needs to be congruence between your belief and your actions. Peter Bulkley said this, If God be God over us, we must yield him universal obedience in all things. He must not be over us in one thing and under us in another, but he must be over us in everything. So obviously this rules out mediums and spiritists, but it also rules out our culture's lies. Holiness begins in reality, and that begins at home. Look at the next verse, verse 9. If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. Don't you wish this law was still in effect today? No, we don't, because we'd all been killed. (laughs) It not only works for us, it works against us. Interesting the words that are used here. The word here, the Hebrew word for curse, is the word kalal, which means light. It doesn't mean light like light you see, but light as opposed to heavy. So he who he who curses is light. And it's the idea of being on a scale. It goes up, and it's like, there's not much to him, not much to him. But the word for honor, honor your father and mother, is the word that means heavy. So now you see that there is, there is weight to that commandment that's much more valuable. At the very least, it refers to treating parents as if they're important. Uh, but the word is used as stronger than that. It's the same cursing that Shimei did when he cursed David, when Job cursed the day of his birth. It's the same kind of strong cursing that was punishable by death 
Why? Why? In this chapter, you'd think cursing father and mother, that's not near as bad as, you know, uh, playing the harlot after Molech or some of these other things that come right after this. Why begin here with cursing father and mother? Because if this falls apart, if the disrespect for family and the home falls apart, then it's just a matter of time and the nation is gone. And we see that cross-culturally, not just in uh, Leviticus. We see it in our world today. Now, we're not going to read the verses that follow. Um, You might want to just kind of skim down and look, and you'll see why. We touched upon this in detail last time around, and this essentially repeats it along with the punishment. But suffice it to say that another destruction of families, verse 10, is adultery. Verse 11 through 12 is incest. Beyond the family, like we talked about last time, Verse 13 is homosexuality. Verse 14, polygamy. Bestiality, other sexually immoral acts, all the way down through verse 21. And then the Lord ends this section, starting in verse 22, with these words. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation, which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. So, the first section ended with the command to shun pagan thinking by committing yourself to God's word. So, this section focuses on actions. And so, here's the second principle. Second principle, shun ungodly practices by saturating your mind with God's word. Shun ungodly practices by saturating your mind with God's word. So just as belief leads to behavior, and the solution there is focus on God's word, same here, just from the other side. Ungodly practices by saturating your mind with God's word. Um, I wonder whether to not to read this. I read, um, read about this in, a, in the magazine called Today's Christian Woman. Kimberly Schumit tells how she became a Christian after living as a witch. So we think this is sort of otherworldly, but this is everywhere. I think I mentioned to you not long ago that I went into a bookstore in the mall here in Stone, in Stonebriar Mall. It wouldn't take you too much to guess which major bookstore in Stonebriar Mall I went into to see this. I walked over to the self-help section, and it was all tarot cards and witchcraft and this and that. They wouldn't be selling that if that stuff didn't sell. I mean, I don't ever see my books there. Because they don't sell. (laughs) If they sold, they'd be right there in the front. So anyway, I say that to say, this is real. We're swimming in Christian water. We don't always realize that it's right next door. Anyway, Kimberly Schumann, listen to her testimony. She became a Christian after living as a witch. She came to the church, to a church that accepted the way that she dressed, that accepted her in a Bible study, began to teach her the Bible, shared with her the gospel. And she said this, and I'll read her very words. The Holy Spirit began melting my vanity and arrogance with a power stronger than any hex, incantation, or spell I'd ever used. Suddenly, the blindfold I'd worn for 30 years was stripped away, and instantly I knew what I'd been been searching for, 
Jesus. The same God I had neglected, whose name I had used as profanity, whom I had flat out rejected, was the one who sent his son to suffer for me, to take the guilty verdict so that I could be found innocent. I soon realized my life was filled with empty props. Great line. And it was time to clean house. My first act of obedience was to throw out all my books on witchcraft and the paranormal, as well as my tarot cards. But the most important possession and the most difficult to discard was my treasured crystal ball. I drove to the Pacific Ocean, and as I dropped the ball into the deep blue water, I knew I had a Savior who would be with me always. It still moves me to tears to think he waited through all those years of anger, disappointment, fear, and bad choices. All the mistakes I'd ever made were wiped clean. God can save anybody, even you and me. I did kind of an informal interview a few years back with quite a few people and asked them what the meaning of life is from their perspective. What necessarily a Christian survey, just flat out, what's the meaning of life to you? A lot of answers. One lady said, it's to enjoy my new husband and grandchildren and children and to focus on always being kind. Another man said, the purpose of life is to do the very best I can in all I do and minimize the hurt that I inflict and the negative impact I have on society. Meaning comes from seeing the positive results when I succeed a little. If everyone did that, the world would be a better place for everyone. And you know, that's great. It's a great response. These are, these are great responses. But it is the response of our culture. Basically, be happy. Meaning of life? Be happy. That is my pursuit. The pursuit of happiness is our pursuit. But what happens when you die? Have you pursued the happiness that comes after that? Because that is inevitable. In fact, of all the events in the human existence, death is probably the most certain event. Everything else is just sort of you wait and see. But for death, it's going to happen. Have you planned for that? Because it's going to happen. Sometimes we plan for death like some people, well, like some people drive. And by some people, I'm talking about those who will pull out right in front of you, but won't look at you. You know what I mean? It's almost like if I don't look at you, then I'm safe and it didn't really happen. My spirituality is tested, I think, greater on the highway than anywhere else. Um, anyway, I don't curse much. <laughs> Except in the wood in the wood shop, occasionally if I smash my thumb, something'll something'll pop out. This week, as I was putting on this little doohickey, I've come to call it, uh, there was one moment that I actually said something because it hurt. So pain tends to do that, and so does driving. And my my daughters. One time my daughters we were, this guy cut us off and, and I called him something right there, loud in front of God and my daughters. And I realized that I had said it and I turned and looked in the back seat and they both just exploded with celebration. 
Yes! But why are you celebrating? We are products of our culture. You as well as me. Back before caller ID, I had a solicitor call me, and I say that because if I don't know the number, I don't answer the number. Well, I didn't know the number back then because they didn't have caller ID. So answer, hello, it's a solicitor. You can always tell when it's a solicitor because they use your last name. Mr. Stiles? Yes? Congratulations, you just won an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii. This is literally what he said. I just said, no thanks. He says, you don't want a trip to Hawaii? No, I don't. And I also don't want whatever else, else it is you're selling me. Because I knew solicitors don't call to give you anything. They call to bait the hook. They call to give in order to get a whole lot more. That's how marketing works. Sometimes it's for a benefit. A lot of times it's not. Satan works like that too, by the way. Everything he promises us, every shortcut that the world offers us, it's just bait on a hook. It's just a trip to Hawaii. Sounds good. You say yes. You bite the hook, only to realize there's a hook. What you get, you give back in spades. How are you fighting the culture right now in your life? I, I know you are, because it has a deep, deep effect on all of us as Christians. I hope you're fighting. I encourage you never to give in and just let yourself go with the flow. It's a whole lot easier to do that initially, isn't it? You just lay there and just float along. And for a moment, it's like, oh, why didn't I do this sooner? Until you hear that terrible waterfall. And it does come. One of the reasons I love emphasizing the geography of the Bible so much is because it's not just fun to take a trip to Israel or to pull out a map and uh, look at the land of the Bible. What's fun about it or what's helpful to it is it gives you a context that you could not get any other way. For example, you get the idea when you, when you go there, you realize that God put Israel in a very strategic place. If you look at the map of the Holy Land, not just Israel, but all the lands that surround the Holy Land, you see that it is the only land bridge that goes from Europe, Africa, Asia, back and forth you know, to Egypt. You had to cross through Israel. There was a highway that went right through Israel. And every major world power all throughout history, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Israel, had to control that international highway. That's how you got to and from Egypt to fight, to trade, to travel. So you wanted to control the land of the Bible. God put his people right smack in the middle of the world. In fact, God said in Ezekiel 5, verse 5, I have set Jerusalem in the center of the nations in a, to be an influence for the nations. But it had a double-edged sword. You could either influence the nations that God brought to you or the nations that God brought to you would influence you. And that's what happened. That's what happened, unfortunately. God's put you in the center of your world to be an influence. And again, you got the choice. You can influence them, or they can influence you. So we can't live out of the world. We have to be in it. We have to be in this culture. We have to swim against, have to swim against it. It's hard. But the question you always want to ask yourself is, who is influencing whom? J.B. Phillips had that popular paraphrase 
of a powerful Bible verse. In Romans 12, verse 2, he said, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It's a great paraphrase because it's trying to squeeze you into its mold. The Apostle Paul once wrote that he considered all that the world had to offer as rubbish, he told the Philippians, which is a very kind translation. Rubbish. The uh, New International Version and NASB say rubbish. The uh, Darby translated as filth. Uh, Today's English version translates it as garbage. King James actually comes the closest. It translates it as dung, but it basically means excrement. Paul says, I had everything the world had to offer, but I consider it all excrement. And the word excrement is a nice translation too. I won't say that the Apostle Paul used a bad word, but let's just say a true translation of scubula is one that we can't say here in class. Paul says, I consider it all that compared to knowing Christ. The best the world had to offer is that compared to knowing Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful comparison. Um, We all need to remember that Jesus, his disciples, and Paul were failures by the standards of our culture. Can I say that again? Jesus, the apostles, Paul, all who lived a godly life in the scriptures were failures by the standard of the culture. Notable exceptions, Daniel, Joseph, but by and large, Jesus, our Savior, was a failure in this world's eyes. And yet he was the most successful man. That's helpful as we think about pushing back against our culture that we live in. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us the scripture by which we live our lives each day. From the very first chapters, you show us that we were not created to live independently of you. You didn't create us autonomous, but we are very dependent. You created us to need you, to need the guidance of your word to fight back against the pull of our culture and the lies of the devil that offer shortcuts to our destruction. Thank you for the scriptures that give us the insight that we need and the courage also to apply those scriptures. A couple of very specific requests we ask you, Lord. Our world is a wicked world that desperately needs the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and faith in him is all it takes to have those sins forgiven. Even the worst sins, you can change lives. You do it. You've changed our lives. And we pray that you would continue to keep us in the scriptures every day. Not a, not a box to check, not a mere ritual, but we come to you, Lord, in need like we come to food. We need you. We need the wisdom of your word to counteract the lies that we will hear the rest of the day. Thank you that you've given us this wonderful tool in the Bible to renew our minds, to fill us with your thoughts, to give us insight that is deeper 
than we could ever get just by sitting and thinking alone or even talking amongst ourselves. We could never come to the depth of the, of the wisdom of the Word of God. And as we share that humbly, as we live that honestly in this fallen world, we pray that we would be what you intended Israel to be as you put them in the center of the nations, that we would be an influence for all those who desperately need to hear the truth, just like we did when we uh, came to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. We don't worship this book. We know that it only points to you, and we worship you. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Wait. Oh, I wouldn't get a little present. <laughs> I I just couldn't help but wonder how do you tie your shoes one handed? I can't figure that out. And then put them on. I figured you cheated that way. But the other question is, why would you let Kathy leave town? <laughs> anyway, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.